0: Well, it probably wouldn't shock you if I told you that things have changed. The times have changed. Life looks very different now than it even did when I was young. And I'm not that old, really. The pace of life, some of the things we do to occupy ourselves, some of the values our culture has, they're very different now than they were even when I was young. Maybe you're older than I am. Maybe you grew up in the 80s or the 70s or the 60s or prior to that. And you would attest to this. You would say, yes, things are so much different now than they were when I was young. We didn't even used to wear seat belts. We could rewind the clock even further back. What if we went back to, say, 250 years ago? That would be the year 1772. What if we took someone from 1772 and dropped them into our world? Do you think it would look a little different for them? I don't even know if they could compute. It would be so different. They might just faint and keel over on the floor. They would see things like electricity and cars driving around and planes flying overhead and this thing called the internet. It's vastly different than what things were like in those days. Something that I find very interesting, though, is even though the times have changed and technology has changed and culture has changed and scientific advancements have been made, people don't really change that much. Individual people can change. You and I can change. I hope, for instance, that I am not the same person that I was, say, when I got saved 17 years ago. I hope that in that time, I've matured and grown and developed and changed some. But people as a whole mankind the world at large doesn't really change people have been the same from history past up until now folk have had the same basic needs all along as they do today things like food or shelter or love those are universal deep needs that are true regardless of what time space place or culture you are in what we're going to see in God's Word today is another need, another need that is universal, another need that goes beyond any time or space or a particular culture. It's something that all people in all places experience at different times and at varying degrees. We're in the second week of our series going through the Gospel of John. This is a great book of the Bible, and one of the interesting things is it was written 2,000 years ago, and yet it still speaks accurately to the human condition and the human heart and the human experience. That's God's word for you. It's timeless. And God has a word for us in it today. So grab your Bible, turn it to John chapter 1, verse 19. That's where we're going to begin today. Again, in this text, we are going to see a deep, universal need. It starts out in verse 19 by saying this. This is the testimony of John Now, at the beginning of that text, it says this is the testimony of John. This is not the John that wrote this book. This is referring to John the Baptist. Now, you might think, why do I care about the testimony of John the Baptist? That was some guy that lived 2,000 years ago. I have a life. I'm struggling. I have my issues. I'm just trying to make it through this day intact. Why do I care about this John the Baptist character? Well, number one, as we learned last week, it said he was a man sent from God. That's what it says in John 1.6. God sent and was using and working through the life of John the Baptist. So we should pay attention to that. Furthermore, Jesus said in Matthew eleven eleven, of all people that have been born of woman, there is none greater than John the Baptist. It's pretty high praise coming from Jesus. God was all over John the Baptist, using him, working through his life and his work and his ministry. That should be cause enough for us to pay attention. When you and I see a life or see a person that God is working through, we should regard them and pay attention to what's happening in their life, not just so that we can copy them and learn to look like them, but so that they can help us become more like Jesus. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now, the Jews in reference here, these are the Jewish religious leaders of the day. It says in verse 24, they had been sent by the Pharisees. The priests and Levites mentioned here, these are people that worked in the temple. The temple was in Jerusalem, and it was the center of Jewish worship. It was the place where God's presence dwelt on the earth. It was where you went to worship. It was the connecting point between heaven and earth. And the priests and Levites worked in the temple as ministers before the Lord. But what was going on here is that apart from the temple, apart from Jerusalem, apart from the religious clergy, God was moving through John. John was causing quite a stir in the region. Powerful things were happening through him. It says in Matthew 3, 5 that people would come from all over the region just to get near John and see what was up. And as we've said before, this was not the era when you could just watch the live stream or click the YouTube link. Nobody was there capturing it all on their smartphone. You couldn't even get in the car and drive there. People had to walk and go way out of their way and inconvenience themselves, go for miles just to be where John was. Don't miss what's happening here. All of the people in view so far, the people going to John, the religious leaders, they are all looking for something. They are all searching and longing and looking for something, something more, something that would come along and change up their status quo. Be mindful of that. They approach John and say, who are you? And in verse 20, it says he confessed and did not deny, but confessed I am not the Christ. That term, the Christ, is a title that means Messiah or anointed one or chosen one, someone who's set apart for something. And it's a title that refers to a singular person, not multiple. There are not many Christs. There's one Christ. The Christ was a majorly anticipated figure. Among the Jewish people, they'd been looking forward to the Christ since hundreds and hundreds of years before in the early days of the Old Testament. It was prophesied that the Christ would come. He would be one of the Israelites. He would come from the family line of King David, who was a great king in Israel's past. He would come as their Emmanuel, their God with us, their Savior. These people were looking for the Christ because the Christ represented restoration. The restoration that these people were looking for was specifically political. See, in this day, the the Israelites were under the rule and under the thumb of the Roman Empire, the Roman government. And they hated it. They wanted to be liberated, and they thought the Christ will come and overthrow the Romans and restore the kingdom of Israel. They were looking for restoration, to be restored. John says, I'm not the Christ, I'm not your guy. But they keep at him. In verse 21, they ask him, What then? Are you Elijah? Elijah was a prominent figure in the Old Testament. He had lived several hundred years before this account of John the Baptist. He was a prophet of the Lord, doing powerful signs and wonders by God's power. And one of the cool things about Elijah is that he never died. He was going along one day, and the Lord just whisked him up to heaven. He's gone. He's out of here. And the Jewish people were looking forward to the return of Elijah. They said, well, he never died. He could come back. And it says in Malachi 4, 5, God said, I will send the prophet Elijah before the great and awesome day of the Lord. In other words, Elijah is going to come as sort of an opening act. You know how that works? If you go to a concert, sometimes they have an opener and the opener is pretty good. But what you're really there for is to see the main act because they're really good. That is where the substance is. And so... They were looking forward to Elijah coming back because it meant great things were going to come after him. And John said, I'm not Elijah. I'm not your guy. He was sort of a figurative Elijah. Jesus actually referred to John the Baptist as Elijah in Matthew 17, 12. But he says, it's not me. But these people, regardless, were looking for Elijah because Elijah represents hope and power. Hope that something is soon coming and it's going to be powerful and great and awesome. They were looking for hope and for power. He says, I'm not that. And so they say, well, are you the prophet? The prophet comes from another place in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen. God says to the people of Israel, I will send to you a prophet, someone from among you, someone who is like you, and he will speak what I tell him to speak. Now, in the Old Testament times, the role of a prophet was to speak on behalf of God. God would give a message to the prophet, and the prophet would go deliver it to the people. It was usually a message of, hey, you guys have gotten off track. Here's what God says. We need to repent. We need to get back on track with God. We need to roll on with God, get back to His ways and to His heart. There were many prophets in the Old Testament, but all of them served as sort of a precursor and a foreshadowing to the ultimate prophet who was going to come and one day connect people to God in in a sweeping, definitive kind of way. Ultimately, Jesus is that prophet. Some don't think so. Some people think that that prophet is Muhammad. That's what people of the Muslim faith believe. They say, well, in this text, there's the Christ and Elijah and the prophet. They're all different people. So if Jesus, in fact, is the Christ... He can't be the prophet, too. That must be Muhammad. Well, that's not how it works. In Deuteronomy 18, 15, God says, I'm going to raise up someone like you. It's going to be someone who is an Israelite. Well, that that would be Jesus. And it says in John 12, 49, Jesus says of himself, I speak only what the Father tells me to speak. That's exactly what the prophet's role was from Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen. So that prophet is Jesus. But regardless, these people were looking for the prophet because they were looking for some sort of a fresh word or a fresh revelation or a fresh encounter or something to come along and shake up the ground that they were living in. John says, I'm not that guy. It's not me. And in exasperation, these people say, well, in verse 22, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Again, do not miss this. In all of these questions, in all of this grilling, these people were searching for something. They were looking and longing for something. They were longing for more. Deep inside, they had a sense of Things are not the way they ought to be in my life. I am missing something. I feel empty. I feel incomplete. There must be more out there than what I'm seeing. Maybe you've felt that way before. That's the universal need I was talking to before. This is something we all experience at different times. Certainly when things are going poorly in our lives, it's pretty easy to say, yeah, there's gotta be more than this. This experience I'm in right now is the worst, and I know that there's better days out there than this. Sometimes, though, we feel this way. We have that longing for more when things aren't even going poorly. Sometimes we're rolling, around, rolling along, we're not in some kind of catastrophe or disaster, yet there's just this gnaw This sense in our heart that something's missing. There is something more out there. Something that I am not seeing. And here in John 1, that's what's going on. And these people see John and all of the power and the wonder and the signs and the the movement of God happening there. And they're saying, oh my word, maybe this is our guy. We got to go check him out, and they throw all their eggs in his basket. And what he's trying to say is, I am not your guy, this is the wrong place. And do you know what? We do the exact same thing in our day. We have this void, this hole, this longing in our souls, this aching in our bones that says, There's got to be more than this. And we naturally, instinctively set out to fill that void, and we tend to fill it with all of the wrong things. We say, If I only could have an increase in my finances, that void would be filled. If only the government would change the rules and I could go see my friends and my family, that that void would be filled in me. If only I could find that special someone, that relationship, that boyfriend, that girlfriend, that would really just fill the void in my life. If I could only just have the new and shiny phone or car or house, that would satisfy me. And as good as all of those things seem, none of them are ever good enough to fill the void that is in us. We need something more enduring than these things. Rather than looking at all of these resources that are around us to try and satisfy that longing in us, we need to consider the source. Rather than looking to created things to fill that void in us, we need to consider the creator. Because ultimately, this deep universal longing that we feel as human beings... This longing for more, this longing for glory and life and gusto and significance and hope and life, it's actually a longing for God. It says in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that God has placed eternity in the human heart. That language of eternity, that's language for God. God is eternal, everlasting, and he has put a seed in us of need to be connected to him, to walk with him, to draw our strength from him, and to understand our identity and our purpose based on him. This deep soul longing that we experience that gnaws at us, at people, it is a longing to be connected to God. And I'm here to tell you today that only in Jesus Christ is there the restoration that I mentioned. And the power and the hope and the fresh word and the fresh encounter and the joy and the peace and the significance that your soul is desperately craving. It is only found in Jesus. And John is going to make that clear as we continue on in our text. They say, who are you? And in verse 23, John says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. The prophet Isaiah said that 700 years prior, and here it is coming true in John the Baptist. The role of John the Baptist was one of being sort of like a crier. You know how that works? Sometimes it used to be in movies. I'm pretty sure it was in Lord of the Rings. When the king is making his way into town or into the castle or wherever... He doesn't waltz in first they send someone in ahead of him and they say the king make way for the king attention the king is coming everybody get out of the way and pay attention and then the king comes in that's john the Baptist's role when it says make straight the path of the lord it's saying get out of the way get out of your own way pay attention regard what's happening here someone is coming make way for the lord the lord is coming the lord is what we need John says. But they asked him in verse 25, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? See, John was baptizing people in the Jordan River. It was a baptism of water. It was a baptism of repentance from sin. And in those days, that kind of thing wasn't super uncommon. Matter of fact, some people that were converting into the Jewish faith would get baptized as a symbol of sort of crossing over into that new faith. But these religious leaders, in their minds, the one doing and carrying out the baptism ought to have been someone with some sort of clout or authority or priestly role. They had to be a somebody. But here's John the Baptist, and he's kind of a nobody. In their eyes. So when they say, Why are you baptizing? what they're really saying, it's kind of a thinly veiled insult. It's kind of saying, Who do you think you are doing this? And John is happy to answer that question. And watch how he deflects. Watch where he points now. In verse 26, he says, Yeah, I baptize with water, but there is one coming after me who is before me, even the one whose, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So he doesn't answer their question by saying, here's who I am. He points to someone else. He focuses on the one who is coming. He says he's significant. You can't afford to miss the one I'm telling you about. You are looking for someone to come and deliver you and change things for you. And he's on his way. He is coming. And he's not just anybody. He is royalty. He is significant. He is important. You get that in the language of the untying the strap of the sandal. Some of you guys don't like feet very much. Feet are, in some ways, kind of gross. But in our 21st century kind of day and the life we live, we don't even have any idea how gross feet would have been back in this day. A lot of people in those days didn't wear shoes or socks or anything. You would walk barefoot. And whatever was on the road or the path or the terrain in front of you, you walked through that. You stepped through that. You stepped in it sometimes. Pretty nasty. Some people had sandals that they could wear. But even those, they're not going to protect your feet from being dirty. You're still kind of stepping in stuff and your feet are still getting dusty and dirty and picking up other contraband. It's gross. Feet were gross. And John says, I'm not even worried to get down near his feet. He is that significant. I am that unworthy. I can't even do the lowest of jobs for this one who's coming. When it says about untying the strap of the sandal, you realize that physically, in order to untie someone's sandal strap, you need to be bowed low to the ground to do it. He says someone is coming who is going to fill that longing in your soul, in your heart, and he happens to not just be some random person. He happens to be glorious and worthy. He is the king of all kings. John is going to zero us in on who he's talking about in verse 29. He says, it says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is such an important, critical, key verse. Verse. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That right there, friends, is the solution to our longing for more. That is it, right there. You need to understand that your deepest problem is not something that is physical or emotional or financial or environmental. Your deepest problem, your deepest need is spiritual You need to understand that the solution for your troubles, the filling of that void that is in you does not come from getting a raise or finding a significant other or getting a bigger house or reading a self-help book. It comes through a person and that person's name is Jesus Christ. You need to know that you and I were created To be in relationship with God. That is literally part of our physical hardwiring DNA as human beings. We were made to be with God. To walk with him. To abide with him. To enjoy him. To experience his presence. To follow him. To love him. To serve him. To worship him. God says, the way I want it is that I will be your God and you will be my people. That's how he has it set up. And that is the scenario when life flourishes. That is the position that we are supposed to occupy as human beings. The problem is we have all rendered ourselves incapable of being in that position. Because we have all sinned. Every single one of us. We have sinned fallen short of God's glory. We have rebelled against Him, turned away from Him, turned our backs on Him, walked away from Him, gone against Him, been hostile against Him, made ourselves enemies of God by our sin. And sin separates us from Him. Because of our sin, we have brought death into our story and death into the world. Because of our sin, we have all put ourselves on a path that leads in shame and punishment and condemnation and wrath. It's not good. Apart from some sort of outside intervention, we are not in good shape. We are not able to live the lives that we were created to live. That's tragic. But here's the good news God intervenes into our story Jesus Christ the son of God comes to us he steps down from his throne in glory takes on the form of a man enters into human history right into our mess for us Jesus lived a perfect sinless life, which we have all failed to live. And then he went to a cross to die as our sacrifice for sin. You see, God, in history past, set up a sacrificial system. It says in his word that no sin is forgiven without the shedding of blood. Blood needs to be shed for you to be forgiven. Something has to die so that you can live. And in this sacrificial system, animals would be sacrificed, and their blood would atone for the sins of the people. Oftentimes, the animal that was sacrificed was a lamb. A pure, spotless, unblemished lamb. That's why it says here, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The problem with the sacrificial system, though, was that it was not enduring. It was not lasting. Time after time, year after year, again and again, people had to come and sacrifice an animal, sacrifice an animal, sacrifice an animal. It wasn't meant to last until the ultimate sacrifice came on the scene. Jesus, God himself, sacrificed his life pay for ours and his sacrifice his death on the cross takes away our sin by dying on the cross Jesus took on our sin and he gave us his righteousness through the cross Jesus takes our death so that we can have life through the cross Jesus takes on our wrath so that we can have blessing Because he loves us. His sacrifice, and only his sacrifice, is the means by which we can be saved. By which we can be made right with God. By which we can enter into the relationship with God, which is the life and the place that we were supposed to occupy all along. Only through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ can our situation be changed. That might not be what you'd expect. You'd say, I'm not sure that speaks to the longing in my heart. I'm pretty sure what I need is a new car or a new phone. But this is it. Don't miss it. This is where it all begins. Your deepest need is to be made right with God. That is the need you sense at the very pit of your stomach, deep in your soul, right within your bones. It's to be made right with God so you can walk with God. And once you are made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ, accepting him as your Lord and your Savior for the forgiveness of your sins, you enter into relationship with God, which is the space you were created to occupy all along. And you start to be able to enjoy God's presence and God's provision and God's faithfulness in your life and God's grace over your life and God's love for you as a believer. And the fact that God is for you, so who could be against you? And the fact that he has an eternity for you. Friends, that is a life. And that is what starts to address the need in our souls. You need Jesus. We all need Jesus. And John, in the rest of this text today, he clearly identifies Jesus as the key to it all. In verse 30, he says, this Jesus is he of whom I said he comes before me because he was before me. John recognizes him as the eternal God who has stepped down into human history. Verse 31, John says, I myself did not know him. John didn't recognize him at first. Jesus lived most of his life in obscurity. But John says, excuse me, this is the reason I came baptizing, that he, my be revealed. It's so that you could see him. It's so that Jesus could be made known. Verse 32, John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend on him like a dove, and it remained on him. That's a reference to Jesus' baptism. In Matthew chapter 3, we can read about that. John baptized Jesus, and in the wake of that event, the Holy Spirit descended from heaven in the form of a dove, and it remained on Jesus. John said that was a sign. This is who you need. This is who God has sent. This is the one our souls long for. Verse 33 It says, God said to me, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. God exists in three parts, three persons, the Father, the Son, the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us and with us as believers. So when you accept Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is the power and the presence of God with you, in you, working through you, for you. So you are never alone. You are never abandoned. You are never isolated. You are never cut off. God is always with you as a Christian by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is the one through whom the Spirit comes. And in verse 34, John caps it all off. He says, This is the Son of God. A title that major can't be overlooked. He is significant. God himself is among us in the person of Jesus Christ. You cannot miss that. Friends, That longing for more that we all have experienced is really a longing to be with Jesus, to know Jesus, to walk with Jesus. You need to know him today. You need to discover and experience his love and his goodness and his grace and his salvation today. Maybe for the first time, you need to regard Jesus. If you have never known Him, if you have never accepted Him as your Lord and your Savior, if you have never been saved, if you have never had your sins forgiven in Him, now is the day. If you want to know more about that, reach out to us. We'd love to chat about that with you, because you need Jesus. That's the only thing that's going to satisfy that longing in your heart. I realize a lot of us listening now are already Christians. And the answer is still the same for you. Even as Christians, sometimes we get into times and seasons and spaces where we feel that gnawing at us, that sense of something's not quite right. There must be more than this. Jesus is still the answer. It's not that we just need Jesus only to get saved. We still need him each and every day. And if you're ever in that place, maybe you're there right now, Christian, where you're longing for more. Jesus is still what you need. I'm not suggesting you need to get saved again. That's not how it works. But I'm suggesting that you need a fresh look, a fresh encounter, a fresh experience with your Lord and your Savior. That is what your soul needs. Don't try to fill that void by looking somewhere else. It's Jesus. It's always been Jesus. And it's only Jesus. And my hope and my prayer for us is that we would be a people in this season who can behold Jesus in a new way, in a fresh way, in an incredible way, that His power and His love and His grace would wash over us, that His presence would strongly be with us, and that that longing that's in our souls sometimes would be quieted and stilled because of His involvement and His presence in our lives. Friends, we need Jesus. That's why this text is so clearly pointing to him you need jesus we all need jesus what i want to do with the few minutes i've got left i want to kind of pivot i want to change gears a little bit there's something else in this text that god wants us to get today and i'm speaking this toward christians people who are already believers this one's for you god kind of gave me this today he wanted to make sure we we got onto this before we moved on from this text It's incomplete to read this section of John chapter 1 without seeing ourselves in it as well. We see John the Baptist who comes as a witness about Jesus to testify about Jesus and to show the world who Jesus is. Guess who else has that job and that role and that responsibility? You and I as believers. We do. It says in 1 Peter 2.9 that we are called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You and I are to witness to Jesus. We are called to that activity. We are called to a testifying about him so that the world would look at us and they would see and be drawn to Jesus. That is the role that we are to occupy as Christians. And so, what can we take away from this section of Scripture in John 1? What can we take away from the example of John the Baptist as far as it goes to our witnessing for Christ? i got four quick things for you that I want to encourage you with. Number one is this. Confess. Confess. When they come to John at the start in verse 19 and say, Who are you? It says in verse 20, He confessed and did not deny, but confessed. And it struck me this week. Why is that word confessed there twice? He confessed and didn't deny, but confessed. You want to know why? It's because that's a significant word, and it's a specific word. Confess. To confess is not the same as you happen to not deny. It's not about, I I happen to not deny and denounce and diminish Jesus. No, it's we go on the offensive, and you consciously, deliberately, intentionally do something. That's what confession is. There are some people who would never deny Jesus, but they also won't confess him either. People have this idea in their minds that I believe privately. My faith is a private matter. And if someone expressly asked me, I wouldn't deny it, but I don't publicize that. I'm sort of just a closet Christian. Let me tell you something, friends. Our faith is not supposed to just be a private one, but a public one. That's why Jesus said, no one lights a lamp and then covers it over with a basket, but they put it somewhere prominent so that the whole room can see that light. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to be pushing as witnesses for Christ. That doesn't mean we've got to cram Jesus down people's throat and be that annoying, obnoxious, religious person. But what this is saying is that if you are walking with Jesus, if you are close to Jesus and spending any time with Jesus, He's going to rub off on you. That's how it works. He is going to change you. And that's going to spill over into the words that you say, the things that you do, the thoughts that you think, the way that you express yourself around other people. And other people are going to notice. The the way that you live your life should give some kind of indication that Jesus is present in it. I'm not saying we're perfect, but I'm saying that there should at least be a flicker, a spark. There's something different about that person eventually the words the speaking the sharing is required sometimes we get pretty freaked out about sharing the gospel sharing who jesus is yeah that is an important part we need that it says in romans 10 faith comes excuse me through hearing and hearing the word of christ so it's got to come out we've got to share we've got to open our mouths and speak but sometimes listen our confession starts with a demonstration of our character more specifically, sometimes our confession starts with a demonstration of Jesus' character working through us. And until, friends, we come to the place where we are willing to confess the Lord Jesus and not be ashamed of the Lord Jesus and to go public with our faith in the Lord Jesus, we are never going to be effective kingdom workers or witnesses. We've got to confess. Number two, we've got to humble ourselves. If we're going to witness well for Jesus, we got to humble ourselves. In this scripture that we read today, John was given major opportunities to pump his tires and inflate his ego. First of all, people came from all around to see him. The important religious people, the influential people came to see him. They flocked to him. That's an ego booster. Not to mention that, they'd say, are you this important person? Are you this significant figure? And all the while, he remained grounded and humble through that. When he had an opportunity to take the spotlight on for himself, he stayed humble. Let that be a lesson and an example for us. Human nature and instinct is to grab the glory for ourselves. But John the Baptist's example is that he gives the glory and he gives it to Jesus. As we've said, people all over the world are searching for more. They are searching for something greater, more impactful, more significant in this life. And we do not want to be a people who block them from seeing that because we're too busy trying to elevate ourselves and our agenda and our program. We've got to humble ourselves. Number three, don't let circumstances detract from your witness. In verse 23, John says, I'm the voice crying out in the wilderness. John literally ministered in the actual physical wilderness. He was in a place where it was sort of a desert wasteland. And you guys know about the wilderness. Not much grows there. There's not much happening. Not much life or flourishing or blossoming happens in the desert. Sometimes we go through desert and wilderness periods in our lives as well. Times where God seems distant. Times where our circumstances are really bogging us down. Times where we can't really make heads or tails of of how we feel or what we're supposed to be doing. We're just kind of mucking through every day. Maybe you're in a wilderness period today. The temptation that Satan is going to try to throw at you is that you would start to believe that God has abandoned you in the wilderness. Which is completely untrue. Friend, God is with you in the wilderness. God is with you. And like in this account, in the book of John, in that place of wilderness, God was moving. God was active. God was present. God was doing things through the life of John the Baptist. God can do something in your period of wilderness. See, Sometimes we get into these wilderness periods and we say, well, uh, I, can't, I can't really do anything right now. I can't go to church. I can't witness. I can't serve. I can't give. I can't, I can't even focus on this. I can't even pray. I can't read my Bible. We just get overwhelmed and we make these excuses to sort of check ourselves out. That's not to sound harsh. I'm not trying to downplay the wilderness that you might be in. But I'm saying that tends to be our attitude. But what we see in the scriptures model for us is, no, you pray for strength. To seek God in the wilderness and seek what he might do in your wilderness. You see, like I said, you might be able to affect someone else while you're there. While you are in the wilderness, you might encounter someone else who is going through a wilderness of their own. And if you weren't in the wilderness, you probably wouldn't be thinking about that person and what they're going through and what they need. You probably wouldn't even notice them or regard them, but you might be able to minister to them or affect them in some way or witness for them in some way because you're in the wilderness together. It also says in verse 28, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan. The key phrase there is across the Jordan. In the Old Testament, God gave His people of Israel a promised land. And that promised land had actual, physical, geographic boundaries to it. And one of those boundaries was the Jordan River. On this side of the Jordan River is not the promised land. On this side, it is the promised land. And here's John baptizing people across the Jordan that's outside the territory of the promised land. Sometimes we feel like that's where we are. I'm outside the promised land right now. God, I'm not really sensing your presence. I'm not really feeling your peace. I'm not really seeing the blessing over here. But we need to witness even when we're in that place. even when we're in that place of God. Why me? Why has this happened to me? Why why why? Where are you in this? Listen to me, We need to work where we're planted, good or bad. We need to ask ourselves, where does God have me right now? Who does God have around me right now? What is God trying to tell me and show me? And what is God trying to do right now? Even if it's a place of wilderness, do not let that disqualify you from witnessing. Do not let that disqualify you from ministry. God is with you in it and he can encourage and strengthen and empower you through it and in it. And the fourth one is this, and we'll wrap up. Point people straight to Jesus. A little bit of an important thing about witnessing for Jesus. you got to point people to Jesus. But that's a reminder that we see in this text. When people are asking, John, who are you? What's the deal? What do we need to know? Where is this answer to this longing for more that we have? What he doesn't tell them is, you follow the rules. You be a good person. You live your truth. You go to church. He points deliberately and intentionally directly to Jesus. He doesn't even use a thinly veiled generic use of God. He, Jesus is where he points people. He testifies about what he knows. Our role is to testify as well about what we know. And sometimes when it comes to witnessing, we get ourselves freaked out. Oh my word, there's so much I don't know. There's questions that I don't have answers for. There's things that I can't even comprehend. Listen to me. You don't know it all and you won't know it all. You can't know it all. But what you can do is testify about what you know. And what you know is Jesus. What you know is how Jesus loved you and how Jesus saved you. What Jesus did for you and how Jesus is with you. And he's in you and he's changing you. Witness to that. Testify to that. And let God do what he does. God is going to do what only he can do. We're talking about witnessing. Like God is the one who... Changes hearts. Only the Holy Spirit can convict someone of sin. Only God can actually save a person. But God is calling us to do our role, which is to witness, testify about Jesus. Point to him. God is way more interested in you faithfully witnessing about the Jesus that you know than he is about you fretting about all the things you don't know and worrying about every little detail. Testify about Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. That is what the world needs to know. People need to know Jesus. That he is the only one. He is the only thing that can satisfy the longing within us. And sometimes they come to know Jesus through you and I. So friends, let us faithfully step into that place, into that role. God is inviting us to witness about Jesus. He has grace for us if we have failed to witness effectively in the past. God is calling us to this wonderful mission, this wonderful work, to tell others about the amazing Savior that we have, the one who has forgiven us of our sin, who has brought us from death to life, from darkness to light, the one who has changed our eternal destiny. That is Jesus Christ. And my hope and my prayer is that we will regard Him, that we will trust Him, that we will abide in Him and walk with Him and do the work that He's calling us to do. It's been an honor. Thank you very much.